Okay, we have a big task today. I want you to take your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 49. We are going to finish the story of Joseph. So grab a Bible. If you need a Bible, just slip up your hand. Our ushers would be glad to hand out a Bible. We're going to be on page 38 if you use the Bridge Bible. Genesis chapter 49. I recently read about a man who uh, went into the sheriff's office in Georgia and turned himself in for a crime that he committed uh, 62 years ago. And he uh, went into, uh, this was just in November. Uh, his name is Peach, Pete Richeson. And uh, he and his brother, who were Auburn students at the time, at one of these major Auburn-Alabama football games called the Iron Bowl, decided to steal a beanie from a freshman. They were Auburn students. They just stole a beanie from an Alabama student, which was kind of a fun thing back in 1949. And they, uh, so they sort of captured the guy and took his beanie, and that, it, he was a freshman in a fraternity, and he was responsible for that beanie, uh, and he had to report back to uh, his fraternity. And so Richardson went in to the sheriff and reported his crime and wanted to make things right. And he also wanted to find the man that he had stolen the beanie from. And the sheriff said, there's a statute of limitations and we can't prosecute this. And uh, Richardson said this, it stayed with me for over 60 years and I would like to give it back to the man it belongs to. I'm sure he had to face some consequences. Here's, what he's, here's how he ends. I must do something soon because we are both in our 80s and I'm hoping he's still alive. Here's a man who was haunted by guilt for over 60 years for something he had done. Guilt can be a powerful thing. It can affect how we view ourselves. It can affect how we view God. Here's a question for you. Do you feel guilty over something you've done? Maybe it was even long ago. Sometimes we really have a hard time dealing with guilt and knowing what to do with it. Joseph's family was ridden with guilt for the sins of their past. And that's been a very important part of the story. And that's one of the reasons the family faced so much dysfunction. So here we go. Genesis chapter 49. Final words for the days to come. Final words for the days to come. And uh, verses 1 and 2, we find the context of this whole thing. Um, and let's just, let me just remind you a little bit about the context Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. Therefore, Joseph's 11 brothers uh, hated Joseph. That was such a big deal that they decided to sell him into slavery into Egypt when Joseph was just 17 years old. In Egypt, he became uh, the chief 
steward of Potiphar's house, was placed in charge of everything, and Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him in the bedroom. Joseph ran because of God's work in his life. And because of that, Joseph ended up into prison. But the Lord was with Joseph. And Joseph became the chief steward over all of the prison in a short time. And then there was a dream of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And the dreams of Pharaoh. And Joseph got out of prison, stood before Pharaoh and interpreted Pharaoh's two dreams. The dreams were about seven years of abundance in the land and seven years of famine. And, pa- and Joseph put, excuse me, Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of everything in Egypt. Joseph became the governor of Egypt. Seven years of prosperity, then the famine. The family back in Canaan, Joseph's family, Jacob's family run out of food. They have to go to Egypt and negotiate for food. The story takes the whole family out of Canaan and brings the whole family of 70 to Egypt to live with Joseph, and they're given the best part of the land. That's the context. Look at verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in days to come. These are final words from Dad. Jacob is now on his deathbed. He's 147 years old. Joseph is 56 years old. Our story started with Joseph being 17. Jacob now is going to speak like a prophet. And he is going to speak a prophecy about his sons. Jacob has not always been a prophet. He's not always even been a good man of God. But now he is speaking words for God. And he's going to talk about his 12 sons. We're going, to, we're going to look at those in chapter 49. Those 12 sons and their families become the 12 tribes of Israel. And those 12 tribes of Israel, remember Jacob and Israel are the same person. Those 12 tribes become the nation of Israel. So when you look at the Old Testament and you hear about the nation of Israel, it's these 12 sons and their families. And this is their origin. And so we come uh, next to uh, final words for Reuben, verses 3 and 4. Verse 3, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor and excelling in power. And Jacob starts out with really some high praise for Reuben, his number one son. But, but, verse 4, turbulent as the waters You will no longer excel, for you went up onto your father's bed, onto my couch, and defiled it. Brothers, they're mentioned together. Verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers. They're swords and weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly, for they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they please. This isn't just dad. God is speaking. Someday God is going to speak about us, by the way. God is speaking about Simeon and Levi. Simeon and Levi were known for their anger and violence, especially in Genesis chapter 34. Their sister Dinah had been raped by somebody from outside the the family and um, from Shechem. And this man wanted to marry Dinah and and he 
sort of tried to orchestrate this with the families so that they could marry. But the brothers, uh, Simeon and Levi, deceived the Shechemites and attacked the city and killed every male of the city. That's kind of like over-the-top anger. But there are people in families that have over-the-top anger too, aren't there? Anger is, can be very dangerous. And here's what Jacob says in verse 7. Cursed be their anger so fierce and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. And God says there's consequences and they're going to be dispersed in the tribes and they're not going to stand out. Um, and uh, Levi is going to be scattered in an unusual way. Levi, this is way before Moses and the law. Okay. This is very early development of the family. Levi will become a priest, will not own property, and they'll be scattered in over 50 cities throughout Israel. They'll still have a job to serve. Simeon uh, became the weakest tribe and the smallest tribe in the nation. And at this point, God has not, not much more to say. Final words for Judah. Judah receives high praise about the future of his family. This is pretty significant. Look carefully at verse 8. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will be bow down to you. That's what was said of Joseph, that the, the sons would be bow down to Joseph. But the other tribes are going to bow down to Judah. This is foretelling about the role of kings in Judah who will reign in Jerusalem like David is from the tribe of Judah and Solomon is from the tribe of Judah. And there's one more. And he is king of kings and lord of lords and he is from the tribe of Judah. One of the reasons for this story is to tell us how God preserved the family that would raise up Jesus Christ. Verse 9, you are a lion's cub, a Judah, you return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness who dares to rouse him, Judah's strength will be well known. Verse 10, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Because from him, kings will come. Until he comes to whom it belongs, this is about Messiah, and the obedience of the nations is his There will be kings who come. Judah is going to get the property where Jerusalem, the city, is. It's kind of a significant area if you know the Bible. In the book of Revelation, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, and there's going to be a new city, a new Jerusalem. And it's in this land that was given to Judah later in Joshua. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. This may well be a foreshadowing to Palm Sunday when Jesus would take that donkey and ride into Jerusalem. Um, his robes in, uh, he, he will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. This may be a picture of Jesus' death and the shedding of his blood on the cross, verse 12. His, his eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Future picture of the Messiah in the book of Revelation in the kingdom. Verse 13, final words for Zebulun. Look at verse 13. Zebulun will live by the seashore and become a haven of ships. His border will extend toward uh, Sidon. As far as I know, Zebulun never possessed land on the seacoast, but Zebulun was uh, a tribe 
that, that had land just inside that prospered greatly from the sea trade, from, from all the ships and all the merchants that came through just a few miles away. Verses 14 to 15, final words for Issachar. Issachar is a raw-boned donkey. How would you like to have that tag? Lying down between two saddlebags. When he sees how good is his resting place and how pleasant is his land, he will bend his shoulder to the burden and submit to forced labor. Issachar's tribe were hardworking farmers. Their land was extremely prosperous. And yet there's something about them that they're going to be like one of the first, uh, when, when they're attacked from the north, they're going to be one of the first tribes put to service from a foreign uh, government. Final words uh, for Dan, verses 16 through 18. Dan will provide justice for his people. That would be the book of Judges. Dan will provide justice for his people and one of the tribes of Israel, Samson was a Danite in the time of Judges. Verse 17, Dan will be a serpent by the roadside. Doesn't sound good. A viper along the path, not good. The bi- that bite the horse's heels so that the rider tumbles backward. I look for your deliverance, O Lord. J- Jacob interjects as he sort of sees this future picture of his son, Dan. Dan was the tribe that led Israel into idolatry right off the bat. And Dan uh, will cause many in Israel to fall away from following the true and living God. Verse 19, final words for Gad. Gad will be attacked by a band of raiders, but he will attack them at their heels. Little is known about Gad. Uh, they, lived, they were the tribe beyond the Jordan, or called the Transjordan. And one of the things is they didn't want to be inside. They, they, they wanted to pick their land early. And they thought it was the best land, but it separated them from the rest of the nation. So when they were attacked from the outside, they were easy pickings because somebody could come in and attack before the rest of Israel could come across the Jordan River to help. Little is known about Gad. Final words for Asher, verse 20. Asher's food will be rich. He will provide delicacies fit for a king. Um, Asher received some great land. They were very prosperous. And uh, they did provide delicacies for King David and King Solomon. Final words for Naphtali, verse 21. Naphtali is a doe set free and bears beautiful fawns. That's all. And they were a mountain people. And and they were uh, in the area of Galilee. They had land in the mountainous area. Final words for Joseph. Joseph, Joseph gets much attention. Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over a wall. Joseph's life thrived in difficult circumstances and his influence is far-reaching, climbing over the wall. With bitterness, archers attacked him. They shot at him with hostility, but his bow remained steady. His strong arm stayed limber because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel. Though uh, Joseph's life was difficult, Jacob's God, the God of Israel, was with Joseph. And Joseph's life prospered. His influence prospered. 
because, verse 25, because of your father's God who helps you, because of the almighty, the all-powerful, who blesses you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies below, blessings of the breast and womb to the family. Your father's blessings are greater than blessings of the ancient mountains, than the bounty of the age-old hills. Let all these rest on the head of Joseph and on the brow of the prince among his brothers. Joseph was indeed a prince among his brothers, and he has been their savior. He has brought them from Canaan, kept them from starving, and now he's going to provide for them in Egypt for over 400 years. Final words for Benjamin, verse 27. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he devours prey, and in the evening, he divides the plunder. The the Benjamites were cruel and violent. King Saul was a Benjamite. His son Jonathan, who was not so cruel, who seems to be very kind, was a Benjamite. Saul of Tarsus was a Benjamite, and he persecuted the church of God. And the great thing, and the great story, and the great news, the good news for us is Jesus Christ turned Saul of Tarsus' life around entirely forgave him his sins and gave him a new start and he became the apostle paul so those are the 12 sons and i hope i did that quickly verses 28 through 32 final words for burial this is jacob speaking all these are the 12 tribes of israel and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them giving each the blessing appropriate to him Then he gave these instructions. I'm about to be gathered to my fathers. Bury me with my fathers in the cave of the field of Ephron, the Hittite, the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre in Canaan. Just when you come across words, just say them fast. (laughs) Which Abraham bought as a burial place from Ephron, the Hittite, along with the field. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried, and there I buried Leah. You know what? I bet he wished he had buried Rachel there too. The field and the cave in it were bought from the Hittites. These are the instructions. Bury me with dad and granddad. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob together. These are the patriarchs of Israel. And then uh, verse 49, verse 33, and the beginning of chapter 50, death of the father. Jacob, Israel, remember they're the same people. If you can remember that, it's going to help you a lot in your understanding of the Old Testament. So Jacob dies in verses 33. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his son, he drew up his feet into bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. And that's how they talked about uh, death, being gathered to his people. Chapter 50, verse 1, Joseph threw himself upon his father and wept over him and kisses him, and Joseph began grieving. Now we come to verses 2 and 3, burial preparations. Hang in there, you're doing good so far. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. Jacob is going to be a mummy. So the physicians embalmed him, because, you know, Israelites didn't embalm. They buried their family members within 24 hours. It, it was an uh, important part. And it's also really about the resurrection. The hope 
burial is about the hope of the future. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming. And there's a lot of information about embalming in case you care to read that. Uh, And the Egyptians mourned for him for 70 days. Now, it's easy to read past, but you know what? This is really a big deal. Jacob is being treated like he is a pharaoh in Egypt. This is greater than most royalty in Egypt. It's not the custom of the Jewish people, but it is the custom of the Egyptians. It is the Egyptians who are honoring Jacob. Why? Because of Joseph. Because of the impact of one man's life in the nation and in a people. And Jacob is honored. And one scholar said that only a pharaoh would be mourned longer, two days longer. So this was kind of a big deal. Request for burial, verses 4 and 5. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's court, If I have found favor, this is kind of like a formality. If I have found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, my father made me swear an oath and said, I'm about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father. Then I will return. So Joseph just officially gets permission to leave Egypt and return to his homeland. And his request is honored. And... We, I have left out a major section here, and I'm going to grab it. Um, the um, I'm just going to point out verses 6 through uh, 14. This is an amazing uh, procession from Egypt into the land of Canaan. And it was like the nation, this was so big, the nations around knew of the significance of the death of Jacob. Um, An amazing, amazing uh, way to honor the dead. You don't have to do that for me, though. Okay. Verses 15 through 21. Family guilt over the past. Family guilt. The guilt resurfaces, verse 15. Forty years of guilt now comes back to the surface. Guilt has a funny way of doing that. Verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge and pays us back for all the wrongs we did him? There's a fear of the unknown. One writer noted that the, that the brothers here are projecting on Joseph what they themselves might do if, if they were in his place. Payback time. Time to do family business. They must have, the brothers must have thought about this a lot. Always burning energy in the background of their lives. What if? What if Joseph wants to take care of the things we did to him? What if he wants to get back? And so verses 16 and 17, they make a peace offering. So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. Now, 
It's not recorded in Scripture that the father left the instructions. And he may well have, because I'm guessing the brothers sort of went to dad and said, Dad, you know, you're not going to live forever. And uh, would you uh, just remind Joseph that he needs to forgive us? Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brother. So they're, they're using dad's name. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and, and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, th- this confession here has never been so clear as right now. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of God, the God of your father. When their message came to him, what did Joseph do? He wept. Joseph hears his brothers, and he sees them be humbled before. Joseph is a godly man. Now, guys, here's something. You guys, here, here's what we can learn here. Joseph is a godly man, and, and Joseph is a man's man. And what does he do? He wept. If you read the story, six times he broke down emotionally to weep. That's a, that's a, that's a good trait guys instead of stuffing your emotions and being like john wayne uh be like joseph and even if you didn't learn it from dad you know i didn't learn to have tears from my father the offer to make up uh their past verse 18 and by the way if you want to look at genesis 42 24 43 30 Genesis 45, verse 2, Genesis 50, verse 1, Genesis 45, verse 14, and Genesis verse 57. That's where Joseph, Joseph, I keep saying Joseph's name wrong. That's where Joseph wept six times. Now the offering, uh, the offer to make up for their past sin, verse 18, his brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. They don't believe they're forgiven. They're scared to death. They're, they're saying, we are your slaves. And uh, by the way, you remember a dream back in Genesis chapter 37 about Joseph's sheaf standing up and the brother's sheaves bowing down. And the brothers got what the dream was about, even if we don't. It was about Joseph having a higher position and that one day they would bow down to him. This is the fourth time they've done that in the, in the story. And they are willing It's sort of like they're willing to work out their own salvation if Joseph will let them. They're willing to become slaves. The assurance of forgiveness, verses 19 through 20, we start with the right view of self from Joseph. Look at verse 19. And Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? God is the judge. I am not the judge. I am the servant of God. That's what Joseph is saying. It's not my place. And Joseph understood that God wants him to give leadership and protection to the family. And he's already given the forgiveness. This is a great thing about Joseph. Am I in the place of God? Joseph knows who he is. And it's about not thinking ourselves too highly, more highly than we ought. That's Romans 12. It's also about not thinking ourselves too lowly. That's where Christians get messed up. We get a low self-worth. It has nothing to do with God. It's about what the world thinks of us or what we think the world thinks of us or what we think of ourselves, and it's not accurate. 
If, if you are a child of God, your sins are forgiven, you have eternal life, you have the Holy Spirit in you, you're a citizen of heaven, you're born again, there's so many things about you. you, have, you have, if you get that, you have no reason to think, yes, we need to be humble, but we don't need to think we're nothing and have no value. Because we are, Jesus died for you and for me. And he didn't do that as a waste. So you could feel bad about yourself. And so it's about having, Joseph had the property. He knew he was before God. And he knew God uh, had a purpose for his life. Then we get a glimpse uh, from God's perspective in verse 20. This is what the whole story of the book of uh, Joseph's story is about. You intended to harm me, Joseph says, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So God used the evil that his brothers intended, and God used it to protect the family, and God used to work it for good for the family and for Joseph and Joseph's life wasn't easy. We get this idea that the Lord was with J- Joseph like every day was great. No, every day, a lot of days were very hard for Joseph. Yet he stayed the course and he kept walking with God and God kept working through this man. Um, do you see that the implications for you and for me? Here's the deal. We can trust God. We have a sovereign God who is in control of our circumstances. We have an all-powerful God. We have a compassionate God, a loving God, a forgiving God. Joseph knew that. We can trust him when things, we can trust him every day, especially when things seem to go badly. Um, here's a question I have for you. Do you see God working in your life and through you? Do you see God working good through your life and around your life? Because he is. Now, one of the reasons you don't see it maybe is just because of you. It's where you are and you're the obstacle and you don't see because you're not willing to submit your life into the hands of the true and living God and patiently watch him work. That's a view from God's perspective, a view uh, for the future, verse 21. So then, don't be afraid, Joseph says to his brother, I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Uh, And then he whacked them, right? I was just seeing if you're staying with me. This is not Godfather 2. This is truly a gracious man, a a forgiving man. Joseph was like Jesus to them. He was their savior, and he promised to provide for them, and he did. Now we come to the conclusion of the book, the conclusion of the story. Verse 22, um, we're going to see... The death of Joseph. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and he saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also, the children of Makur, son of Manasseh, were placed 
at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the Abrahamic covenant. Ties the entire Bible together. You should read it, by the way. Verse 25, And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear on an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid. There's going to be some hard times, but God is going to come to your aid. Then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110. And after that, they embalmed him. So he became a mummy and he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Um, Let's look ahead now. How did this work out? Let's go look ahead a few hundred years. Exodus chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. And then something really amazing happens or major. Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came into power in Egypt. So Joseph had this tremendous influence, but the time eventually ran out. And by the way, um, the Israelites were so fruitful and multiplied greatly, scholars would say conservatively, conservatively that they grew to two and a half to three million in this time period from 70. And that's because there's a count in the book of Exodus of 600,000 males over the age of 20 that came out of Egypt. And guess what? They had families. So 600,000 men who were of marrying age. By the way, they had large families too. That's conservative, two and a half to three million. Um, so let's talk about uh, some lessons. Oh, let me, uh, one more. Exodus 12, verse 40. Now, the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. So you need to know that. At the end of 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. So they went into Egypt under Joseph. Now they're coming out of Egypt. Next slide. Moses took the bones of Joseph. There it is. Joseph is not going to stay in Egypt. Joseph's body is a mummy. Joseph's bone, uh, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear on an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid. Then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. By the way, scholars believe, some scholars believe that they're hoping that one day they'll discover the grave of Joseph and Jacob, that their bodies are still there, never discovered yet. So that'll be interesting. Some lessons. Um, First of all, there are consequences uh, for sin in your family. That was uh, really big in Joseph's story. Um, Jacob and his family. Jacob was conniving and a manipulator, and he was a liar and as the deceiver. And guess who picked that up? The consequences impacted his family. Um, Not walking with God, the family got into sexual immorality and murder and violence. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, 
slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. See, this is who our God is. Next slide. Maintaining love. He's a God of love to thousands and forgiving the wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's our God. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. There are consequences for sin, and it can affect our family. And I don't see any reason why this isn't true today as it was when God gave this to Moses. Your lives do matter. That can explain some about your own past as you think about your family. I don't know about your family. I know about my family. And I know that um, my family has had an impact on who I am. And I've had to deal with that. And I've had to try to grow through that. And the great thing is, and, I, and uh, I've committed some of the sins of the past. And, and the great thing is, is that Jesus can change the whole course of your life and the whole course of your family's lives. I have seen some of my shortcomings and sin impact my own kids, and I hate that. Um, your life will have an impact on your children. Secondly, and most encouraging, there are great benefits for walking with God. Joseph is a great example of the benefits he brought to his family. A man who walked with God and the Lord was with him. Deuteronomy 5.29. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always. This is God speaking to Israel. So that it might go well with them and their children forever. God says there's a connection between your life and the impact your life has on your children. This is one of the things that Sue and I grabbed onto early in my Christian life. That we wanted to make a difference for our kids so they wouldn't have to repeat some of the things that we did. Thirdly, uh, guilt over the past can have a major influence on the way we, we behave. Guilt over the past can have a major influence on the way we behave. As I mentioned already, guilt affects our self-worth, what we think of ourselves. Guilt causes us sometimes uh, to get into a cover-up mode, you know, protection. Don't want people to find out. If they knew what I was really like, they wouldn't like me. I could, you know, I could never bear this. And so it causes us to go into a self-protective mode. Guilt can cause us to project on others. This is what I would do. This is what I have done. That's probably what they're thinking. That's projection. And uh, guilt can affect our view of a loving, kind, gracious, and compassionate God. 1 John 1, nine. A lot of you could quote this from memory sometimes have a very hard time applying it to your own life. If we confess our sins, that's a condition. This is for believers in Jesus Christ. He, God, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So we confess our sins to God and then we don't believe Him. We confess our sins to God and we don't feel forgiven. Therefore, we must not be forgiven. No, it's not about how you feel. It's about this is God's word. It's a promise from God. And if you don't take that, it's true. I, I can't help you. Because God has said he will forgive your sin and cleanse you of all unrighteousness as a follower of Christ. Every one of us needs to take this as truth. 
Now, yes, I have things in my past that I'm embarrassed about and I wish I hadn't been involved in. But I was, okay? But I'm forgiven. It's affected my self-image and I fight with that. But I'm a child of God and I belong to Christ and I know he loves me and he wants the very best for me. Uh, Fourthly, God works, and this is the last one, Stay the course. God works through our difficult circumstances to accomplish his good purpose. And this is the overwhelming story of Joseph. He works through our difficult circumstances to accomplish his good purposes. Again, it's Genesis 50, verse 20. This is Joseph speaking to his brothers. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done the saving of many lives. This is a profound insight from Joseph at this stage in his life. Um, Sometimes I find that people don't like this, the idea that God would use our difficult circumstances, that he would make me go through these difficult circumstances as if he's making me go through them. Here's what I can tell you absolutely for sure. You know, if you look at life, And everybody around you, people who love God and people who don't love God, they face health issues. They face death. They face job loss. They face marriage difficulties. Now, do you want to do this with God or without him? Because God is going to work in your life for good. Um, Romans 8, 28. And one more passage from the New Testament, Testament, and Paul says, and we know that in all things God works for the good. By the way, this is the only time in the entire series I've used this verse because this sometimes gets used too much. But this is absolutely true. We know that all things, in that all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God works for the good. He takes our circumstances that are not good sometimes. They're painful and difficult and hard, and he works them for good. I was thinking this morning about some of my past sins and how they've impacted, how I've been impacted and how they've impacted my family. And I, I turned to Sue this morning, and I said, and my story is, and most of you know this, my story is Sue and I got married when she was already pregnant. And that was pretty much about me. And I turned to her and I said, I wished, I I told her, I wish I could have waited for you. And she turned back and she said, I'm so thankful for what God has done, the good he has done in our marriage. And that's so true. I wish you all could have as good a marriage as I have. Um, God can work good. Let's stand and let's pray. Father, I thank you for the story of Joseph and uh, just to see how you've worked through history. And God, uh, help us to see the big picture of how you work. Help us to see your patience. Help us to see how you work good. Help us to see your grace, your forgiveness, and that you are faithful to your promises. 
And God, may we be willing as your people, as we stand before you, to submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and count on him and rely on him and ask him for help as we go through the joys of life and as we go through difficult times in our lives. Thank you for your word that reminds us of these things. For Jesus' sake, amen.